The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. If you have a Bible, uh, we are in the book of Genesis. If you'd like to follow along, all the verses will be up on the screen. Here's what we're going to do. I am going to read the first few verses of Genesis, and then we're going to get back and we're going to do an overview of the first 11 chapters that we've been preaching through. Uh, We have been preaching through the book of Genesis, and we are kind of doing an overview of what the first 11 chapters are all about. So let me read the first few verses here in Genesis, and then we'll pray and ask for God's help. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And he saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And then over into verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves in the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you plant yielding seed from this that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, has the breath of life. I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and morning the sixth day. Let's pray. God, as we look at your word and capstone these first 11 chapters of who you are and how you've introduced yourself to us, I pray that we would experience a fresh taste of what it means to know you and love you, of your presence with us, that you are joyful and happy, grace-filled and merciful, and that you are happy to live with us. So I pray that we would experience that here this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Are you guys familiar with what a cold open is? A cold open for a TV show? TV shows have this happen all the time. It's a cold open where there's no introduction. They just drop in in the middle of a scene, and they tell you about what's going You get kind of the middle of the drama, and you have to kind of figure out what's going on. But the cold open of a TV show usually... um, introduces you to kind of the main dynamics of who's involved and who's a character and kind of what the show's about. So um, I know that I realized that some of my illustrations, somebody the other day said, dude, when you talk about a phone book, you're dating yourself. Like you realize like nobody under 25 knows what a phone book is. So this is going to date me, but I recognize that The Office is a little bit more of like an old show, but it, it is a show that I watched for a long time. And a cold open in The Office, for example, would introduce you to like the dynamics of Dwight and Jim so, or uh, all the other characters. So you have like the cold open with Kevin and the chili party where he walks in carrying this gigantic vat of chili. And 
and then he drops it, and that's just like, and he re-rolls around in it because he's just an idiot. That's just the way, the way he is, you know. Or the cold open where Dwight makes a fake um, fire. Uh, what is it? The um, the fire drill, or the cold open with a fire drill, where he makes a fake fire drill, and everybody's freaking out, and people get hurt and all that stuff. There's all different types of cold opens, and I could go down a list of all of them. I, I spent maybe more time than I should going through YouTube videos of cold, the best cold opens, but a cold open a answers the question, who are the people in this story, and what's the story about? Last week, somebody in the Q&A basically was kind of like, so as we're closing out Genesis 11, why are all these stories here? Which is really what Genesis is doing for us. Genesis is a cold open to getting to know who God is and what he's about. We are finishing up, we're kind of doing an overview right now of Genesis 1 through 11, and that's really what I think the book of Genesis chapters 1 through 11 is, is it's a cold open into the story of God, introducing us to main stories about who he is, what he's about, and what this whole thing is doing, what's going on in the world around us. Um, we're going to break this down into kind of several different sections, but I think we have to remember what the book of Genesis did for the original people who received it. So the original people who got it were a bunch of people who had been enslaved for 400 years. God had sent his guy, Moses, into town, and he came with a magic staff and told Pharaoh, God tells you to let his people go. He then has a duel with all of God, uh, the, the gods of Egypt, and the God of the Bible destroys all the gods of Egypt through the ten plagues. That's basically a battle show between the gods of Egypt and Yahweh. And God basically shows, I know what the deal is. I've got all the power here, and all these gods are false gods. I've got it down. He then leads them through the desert up to the edge of a river, parts the waters. They walk through on dry land. They watch all their enemies get destroyed and drowned. He walks them through the desert, feeds them with magic food from the sky, leads him up to a mountain, and he says, you guys are going to be my people. And the book of Genesis is the answer to the question, why should we want to live with you? These people are standing in front of this mountain with God having done all of these miracles. I say magic shows, and that's, I don't mean it like, 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 a, like a kid's show at a birthday party. I mean, they are like legitimate miracles of God where he saves people through miraculous ways. And yet, at the end of the day, you can be questioning, like, God, why would I want to live with you? You seem very powerful and strong, but are you the type of God that I want to live with? Genesis 1 through 11 is God basically putting a name tag on, hello, I'm, and you fill in your name. Genesis 1 through 11 is basically God saying, hello, I'm God. And this is what I'm like. So what I want us to do is we're going to kind of break Genesis 1 through 11 into five sections. And as we go through that, the main point of what we're seeing through this is that in a broken world, Genesis 1 through 11 invites us to want to live with our redeeming God. A God who enters into the story, right, just to kind of put my cards on the table. God is, in Genesis 1 and 2, living in the Garden of Eden. And at the end of Genesis 11, he is still coming down and living among people. The point of Genesis 1 through 11 is that God loves to live with people. He likes it. What Genesis 1 through 11 does is it begins to acknowledge and help us understand this world is broken apart. There's fractures of this world all over the place. So what is it like for God to engage and live in a world that is broken? So what we're going to do is we're just going to walk through Genesis 1 through 11, and we're going to 
begin to see how it is an invitation to want to live with this type of God. Who is he? What's he like? So, in Genesis 1 through 2, what we're going to see is that God offers us freedom in his power. So we're going to skip over here. Can we go to the slide, Genesis 1? There we go. Freedom in his power, chapters 1 through 2. So this is the creation story. You guys might be very familiar with this. This is the creation account in seven days. God creates the world in seven days. The first three days of, gen of creation are basically God drawing the outlines of things, right? Genesis 1 through 2, or Genesis 1 through 2 in uh, the days 1 through 3. You have God drawing the outline, so he creates light on day one, and then he fills in the color of all what he, do he does in days four through six. So he creates light on day one, and he creates the sun and the moon on day four. So in all of these days, right, if you're curious about kind of what that means, I, I really feel like bad about having to skip through all this stuff because we've preached all this before. If you have questions, I'm happy to answer it, or the sermons are all online. But in the creation account, we see this fantastic picture of God as a soloist. He is creating something out of nothing, birthing it into the world. And then we see that all the things that exist, they're all God's idea. And he speaks them into existence. And you would get the sense with the ways good, very good are repeated, that not only does God do it, but he likes it. He likes the world that he's made. Have you guys just reflected, we are here in the springtime. This is a great time to talk about this. We are seeing flowers just pop out of the ground. I, my personal, my favorite flower in the entire world are daffodils. I just love the way they look. They're just beautiful in so many ways. But God created a world where he didn't have to you know, create a world where plants regenerate with beauty. He could, they could just do it like algae, just kind of like regenerate all over the place. But God created a world where plants produce not just flowers, but loads of different types of colored flowers. Like you think of all the different colored tulips that you see around the, the, the neighborhood, right? Purple, red, yellow. God created a world where colors exist, right? He didn't have to create a world where colors exist. He created a world where colors exist, and then he created us with eyes to see it and enjoy it, and then not only sight, but then smell, right? I, give you, I, just, I apologize with all the allergies that are going on right now. Certainly it's a negative side effect of all this. But you walk by these flowers or bushes of flowers and you can just smell the aroma. There's no obligation in God's description of being God that he has to make a world that has those things in it. God doesn't have to make a world with sight and smell, sounds like what, this, what the breeze sounds like or good music. All of these things that we enjoy, God made them because he is an exuberant, happy God who's excited about creating a really cool place for us to enjoy and live in. He is super excited about it so that he makes us just to be like him, to enjoy it. All right, that's what these key verses here, I'm, I'm putting these kind of key verses up here as we go through these sections. We get to the seventh, sixth day kind of pull out the main sections. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
And God blessed them, and God said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves in the earth. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Right? God creates this world, and then he gives it to humanity to enjoy and cultivate and spread God's image. And the critical thing here is that we see that this image of God language, God makes us like him. Herman Bavinck, the Reformed scholar, calls us the micro-divine image, right? We're micro-divine beings. We are like God in the sense of we enjoy, we think, we have a soul, we exist, we extend ourselves, we have, we have hands because God upholds the world. We have ears because God hears our prayers. These types of things, everything about our physicality and who we are is made so that we are just little pictures of what God is like. And just to point this in contrast, in the ancient world, they would make icons and they would say to this icon, right, this icon is a manifestation of divine presence in the world. This icon says, here's what God is like. And humans in the ancient world served the pleasures of the gods through the idols. And the Bible comes in and says, no, God created his image to extend his dominion through the whole earth, to make the world more like Eden, to make us more like him and to express what God is like. The Bible says that God sets us in the center of the world to extend his rule and life. And just as we looked at in those verses, it's not men alone, it's men and women, male and female, that God creates so that when Adam sees Eve, his response to her is not like, man, this is a good-looking woman. His response is, here is the image of God manifest in female form. There is an existence of male and female both equally carrying the image of God and then enjoying equally the image of God through this world that is just so enthralling. I wish we had more chapters in our Bibles than just one and two describing what this world was like. There is a freedom of their enjoyment of each other and the world that is breathtaking and marvelous and wonderful and is the original design that God created so that we can enjoy his power and his invitation to freedom in this world. And I can't help but wonder, as we move past these verses, that there is a sense in which people being the image bearers of God, male and female, is a primary way in which we continue to hold witness to the world that God likes this place and he made it good. Amidst all the confusion of gender and sexuality, whatever, God made us and it's good. And he likes that he made us the way he's made us. So unfortunately, we have to go on from Genesis 1 and 2 into the rest of the story. Because God makes this story so wonderful and good but unfortunately, as you guys are maybe familiar with, the cracks begin to happen. So we're going to step into Genesis 3 and 4 and see that the way God introduces himself to us is not only in the freedom of his power, but also the covering in his grace. I don't know how long it took for Adam and Eve to sin, but some interpreters say like it was basically like the next day, like he created the world on a Saturday, Sunday they had church off, and then... <laughs> You know, Monday morning they were, uh, they were breaking God's law. Who knows? But effectively what happens is um, somebody that Adam and Eve trusted um, 
led them into temptation. They broke God's law of don't touch this tree, don't touch a tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what's going on in that, I, I don't know if you remember, that's not like this is a magic tree. It was a tree that God had said, this is the one that's off limits because I decide what's right and wrong, not you. And when they decided to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve were deciding, we're going to decide our morality. We're going to decide what's right and wrong on our own terms. That's really what's going on in the tree thing. They lost sight of the simplicity and clarity of God's word and entered into the fog of temptation. So they take from the tree and they eat. And apart from God, they enter into a life clothed with shame. Right? They, they suddenly become aware. Right? The story goes... They were aware that they were naked, and so they covered themselves with fig leaves. They were exposed. They had sinned against God. They rebelled against his law, and they were covered in shame. They felt shame so deeply so that when God enters the story, he enters into the cool of the day. He's looking for them. I don't know if you guys remember this, but he asked four questions. Where are you? Who told you that you were, that you were naked? Why did you eat? Did you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Right? These questions, when God enters into the story, immediately after their rebellion, right? We, at least I can read these questions and kind of hear them in my head as, what have you done? But really, when God enters, you get this sense of like, oh my gosh, what's happened, guys? God's posture in it is four questions of, where are you? What's going on? Of compassion and concern without giving up the reality that sin has occurred, right? God's not brushing their rebellion under the rug. He's concerned about what's happened. He's not livid, is what I mean to say. Then we come to Genesis 3. I just want to read these verses, and this is kind of where we begin to see echoes of Jesus in the story. Genesis 3.15, God says in his punishment to Eve, I will put enmity, right? That's a... Uh, you might say that the war between Ukraine and Russia is a picture of enmity, right? People who absolutely hate each other. I will put enmity between you and the woman, that's between Satan and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he, offspring, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel, right? This is a reference to the offspring of Satan is death. Death has entered into the picture, and Eve's son will destroy death. And then, Genesis 20, Genesis 3, verses 20 and 21, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. See, in the midst of their rebellion against God, in the shame, in the shame of their sin, God enters the picture with compassion and concern and judgment, but his judgment does not overweigh his grace for them. Right? See, they had clothed themselves in their shame with fig leaves, and God changes their clothes at the cost of a, of a life to give them protection, to give them covering. You see, it's not incidental that he says that they, he covered them with the skin of an animal. The skin of an animal means that an animal had to die in order for them to be protected. And in this is a picture of the gospel, that Jesus himself comes and gives his life to cover us with God's grace. 
to cover us with God's compassion. Right? An animal's life was taken and blood was shed, and God provides them with clothing and mercy at the death of another. Right? This is a picture of the drama of the gospel that Jesus, in giving himself, we sang about this just this last, the third song that Matt led us through. Right? Jesus gives his life so that we can be covered from head to toe with the mercy of God for all the ways in which we have sinned and the shame that we have in our lives. Right? We are not going to do this. But nobody really wants to get up in front of God or anybody else and describe, here's all the, the dirty thoughts that I've had, the nasty thoughts I've had in my, my heart, all the things that I don't want other people to be aware of, right? Nobody really wants to do that. And if you do, you've got problems, right? That's just not... Shame causes us to want to avoid God and shrink away, and God pursues us in our stories to cover us at the cost of the life of another with his grace. All right, we're going to continue to move on. You guys cool? We're tracking? So not only does God cover us with his grace, in, in chapters 5 to 9 of Genesis, we see that God offers us mercy in his judgment. This is going to be similar but a little bit different, right? Again, the story of Noah is basically Adam and Eve sinned. The world continues to move on from there. Um, Cain kills Abel. Abel's, uh, Abel's dead. Um, the more children come about, and then the world continues to move forward. The world continues to go forward, and things get worse and worse and worse. So Genesis 6, 5 comments that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. Basically, people were indifferent to God, God's design for the world. They were mean and, and violent and sinful towards each other and towards themselves and rejecting God all the time. They avoided not God, and they were indifferent to how they were avoiding, avoiding God. They were indifferent to how God had designed the world, and so they continued to violate the image of God and others, and the world continued to get worse. So God floods the world in judgment to wipe away and start over, but right before he does that, he reaches out to a guy named Noah and says, Noah, I want you to build an ark to survive the judgment that is coming. So not only is God bringing his judgment against sin, but he is pursuing. Do you notice how in these stories we're going to continue to see how God is the one who initiates to pursue other people, to bring them to himself. And so he reaches out to Noah and says, Noah, I'm going to judge, but I want you to survive this judgment that is to come. And so I want you to build a mercy boat, right? <laughs> a mercy ship. I want you to build a boat that is going to survive what I'm about to do. And so the waters come and God provides his mercy as a way through the waters of judgment. God sees evil and sin and he must judge it. And yet God still values humanity. He values us and he insists on providing mercy. So then on the other side of the story of Noah, we have these verses. This is the sign, God says, of the covenant that I will make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud. It will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. I will bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember my, the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. 
See, this is, as we said before, this is, uh, the Hebrew word here is the term for battle bow, right? We think bow and we think of like the rainbow in the sky, and that's what God's referring to. But his term that he's using here is God's battle bow, and God takes his battle bow and he hangs it up as though he's done using it. However, you'll notice that in the, in the story, where does the bow point? The bow is pointed towards the very heart of God, where God's judgment will yet again be executed. Because God will execute judgment at the cost of his own life, at the cost of his heart. He will give us mercy through the death of Jesus, where he will execute his judgment so that we may yet again continue to live in the mercy of God. Right, this is, I hope you're seeing in this, this is why we insist that the main point of King's Cross Church is loving Jesus together. Each of these stories draws the outline, the dotted outline, so to speak, and then the rest of the Bible comes in and kind of begins to fill in those dotted outlines, and then Jesus steps into that outline and fills it in in technicolor. This whole book is pointing us towards Jesus, what he tells us about what God is like and how he lives among us right now as God's person, as God's son, of mercy for us. We're going to continue through the story, but I hope you're picking up. This is still continually always and only about Jesus. That's why we are, as a church, loving Jesus together. So let's pick up. After the flood story, it finishes in chapter 9. God offers us purpose in his presence, Genesis 10 through 11. We just looked at these the last couple weeks. Genesis 10 11, basically we revisit God has said at the very beginning of the story, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. That means that God intended for all humanity to be image bearers throughout the whole world. So ethnic diversity, languages, nationalities, all that stuff was a part of God's design. He intended for that to happen. But the way in which we got there was people saying, you know what? We are not going to do that. We're going to build a tower so that we can all stick together and do everything together on our own terms, we are going to ignore and be indifferent. We are going to justify our rebellion against God's purposes for us. They rationalized, God said to go do this, we're not, so we're going to make sure that we're all on the same page. So God goes down into the story yet again. Do you notice here, <laughs> verse six to, Genesis 11, verse 6, And the Lord said, Behold, there are one people, they will have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there, and there confuse their language, so they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over all the face of the earth. Right. Yet again, here we have God in the midst of another rebellious act, pursuing them, walking into the room of this awkward situation of people ignoring God yet again with his name tag, hello, I'm God, and saying, okay, what's the situation here and how do I get you guys back on track? They were trying to say, we are not going to go and obey God and fill the earth with God's image. God says, all right, I'm going to make sure you don't understand each other, so you have to, right? That's God's judgment, and yet... 
his, his presence among them gets them back on track for their purpose to be image bearers who enjoy God's creation, who flourish, who spread, who invent new cultures that express the goodness of God's design, who have different languages that express the wonders of God's communication to us all throughout the whole world. God gets them back on track in the midst of them justifying and rationalizing their rebellion. God brings judgment to get them back on to get them back onto their purpose. Here again, God doesn't stand off, but he's entering into the story. In each story, who's been the one pursuing people throughout this whole thing? You see, this is kind of what I'm saying. Genesis, I, if I could have been more thoughtful ahead of time, I would have said the, the, this, the title of the series in Genesis 1 through 11 was, Hello, my name is God, but it only came to mind after the fact. But here we have God continually entering into all of these stories and continuing to remind us of his purpose and mercy and kindness and grace. Let's finish out here. I just want to, we're going to touch on this and then we will conclude with a few kind of, uh, a few thoughts. In Genesis 11 to 20, 11, 27 to 32, which is the, the final section of the, the verses that we've been looking at, or the chapters we've been looking at the last few months, we have God's invitation into his family. Genesis 11, 27 to 32. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haram, and Haram fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of, kin of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Naor took wives. The name of er Abram's wife was Sarah, or Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife was Malka, the daughter of Haran, the father of Malka and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur to the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terran were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now I recognize there's a lot of details in here that seem just kind of like a family vacation road trip map. But in the midst of all of this, there's something I want to point out, and we'll get into this when we pick up in Genesis, uh, I think in August or September. Ur, the, the place Ur, was known for moon worship. And in Joshua 24, Abram's family was identified as having served other gods. And so here we have, at the end of Genesis 1 through 11, God's main guy, like, like 20 chapters in the book of Genesis are going to be about Abram. And God's main guy, Abram, is seen, we're introduced to him as basically being a moon worshiper, right? I don't know if you guys have been watching Moon Knight on Disney+, Plus, the show, Marvel. Okay, sorry, that's just my thing. But in the ancient world, moon worship was a part of the, all the religious, you know, a la carte of the day. And it seems to me that there's a lot of indications that Abram, before Yahweh, before God reached out to him, was a moon worshiper. And what's important for us to see in this is that even as these first kind of this cold open of who God is at the beginning of Genesis, we find that even the guys that God likes and says, these are what my people are going to be like, are a bunch of people that are worshiping the moon and other crazy gods. 
They're not people who are sitting around in a Bible studies thinking, God, I really want to know you. They're a bunch of people who've known who God was, ignore him, and then find other gods to replace him. Like these commendable people, right? And the rest of Genesis, I, I realize this is a dated reference potentially, but the rest of Genesis is just one continual Jerry Springer show after another. Like it's just a bunch of ridiculous people who are uh, continuing to be ridiculous people that God continues to pursue. What we find, though, in Abram is that the reason God reaches out to him and the reason God makes this whole thing about Abram is that God trusts God. Abraham responds to God and says, I'm going to trust you in the midst of all of this, and I want to thank you for what you're doing in my life. At the end of the day, that's the way we get into what God, God's family, is responding to him and saying, okay, yes. I want you to be my God. I am a complete mess. Thank you for the kindness that you showed in coming into my life. That's what faith is at the end of the day. And as you've seen, Genesis 1 through 11 draws the outline that points us towards Jesus, where we see God's heart taking on physical form, where God himself, God the Son, takes on a physical life and lives among us so that we see what God is like in the life of Jesus at the, we had an event a few weeks ago. Uh, I'm sure you guys remember us talking about this, the, uh, the event with Rachel Denholander. And in the Q&A afterwards, there was about an hour and a half of question and answer with her. And one of the questions that came in that I, I thought was provoking and I thought was interesting is a response to Rachel's talk. And it said, you talk about grief as if it's a healing experience. Can you go into detail about what grieving looks like for you and why it is healing? Now, I'm not going to talk about grief, but the thing that I thought was fascinating there is that somebody listened to Rachel's talk about um, hope and healing for survivors of abuse, and they picked up on how Rachel talked about grieving was a good thing. <laughs> and what we've been talking about in Genesis is similar. Seeing what rebellion is like, what it does to fracture our humanity is actually a good thing. It seems strange to, to some people to say, we're going to spend... 11 chapters, three months, talking about what does it look like to be so messed up as, human, as, uh, as a human species? Like, why is this whole place just completely broken? But the reason that it's a healing experience is that through each of these stories, as we go through them over and over and over again, we see God's grace and mercy and compassion. He does not deal lightly with sin and rebellion. He deals with it, but he doesn't deal with it by wiping us off the map. He deals with it by embracing the judgment himself often enough, by providing a way of mercy over and over again, by continuing to pursue us in the midst of our rebellion so that when we do sin, which will happen, we have a God in these first 11 chapters that we see who is postured with mercy and compassion and grace towards us. See, the point of these chapters is not to read them and think, for example, when you're a kid and you mess up, you don't want this, the response to be, oh, no, don't tell dad. You want the response to be, oh, no, I need dad. Genesis 1 through 11 is a continual picture of, oh, I need this God. I've rebelled against him but I need him. 
this is the very God that I need to help me in the midst of my sin and weakness and death. I need him over any other solution that I could provide. I need him over anything else that I could find. I need him. So that in a certain sense, is similar to that question that Rachel got in the, in the Q&A. Why do we need to keep talking about... Um, why do we need to keep talking about grief as though it's a good thing? Why do we need to talk about rebellion as though it's a good thing? It's because in all of these stories of rebellion, we continue to see God. But we also find ourselves in them. It's interesting to me that in the story of Eden, people are avoiding talking about sin. In the story of Noah, people are ambivalent or indifferent about their sin. And in the story of Babel, people are rationalizing or justifying their sin. It sounds pretty much like me. (laughs) I avoid talking about my weakness and sin. I'm often indifferent to it. Ah, whatever. Just get over it. Or I rationalize it. No, no, you have to understand, you made me do this, that type of stuff. Each one of those things, God continues to push in on. Say, I've I'm here. There is a pathway of grace, of repentance, of mercy forward. But it does not look like continuing to ignore our sin. It does not look like continuing to be indifferent towards it. And it does not look like continuing to rationalize our rebellion. It looks like primarily seeing the type of God who's pursuing us. Right? The point of the story is not to say, now, here's a five-point plan of how to not sin anymore. We don't want to sin intentionally. But the point is that God himself sees us in our rebellion and pursues us. This is the type of God who has pursued us. Just to kind of wrap this up, we've looked at this whole story where God has made a beautiful world that is lush and full, like we said, He didn't have to make colors, but he did. He didn't have to make sound, but he did. Not only sound, but ears to hear it, to enjoy good music or whatever. All of these senses that we have, the world that we have around us, God made it because he likes it, and he likes us being in it to enjoy his stuff. And then we, through these stories that came Eden to Babel, continuing to find ways to break God's stuff, to break our stuff that God's given to us, and to break ourselves. And yet, continuing over and over, God pursues us. God pursues us in the midst of our brokenness. So I don't know what your broken story is. I don't know what that looks like for you. But here in Genesis 1 through 11, this cold open of the Bible, we have this merciful compassionate, redeeming God who wants to live with us. He likes to live with you. And that looks like living with you under the banner and name of Jesus himself. I pray that as we close out these chapters on Genesis 1 through 11, that you would want to and enjoy living with this God. Let's pray. God, as we have looked at these passages, this huge section, so many things we skipped over. I pray that we got it right. 
that we saw clearly who you are, that we see in the midst of the story you and your mercy and compassion pursuing us and loving us and wanting to live with us. So as we continue to worship you, would we do so under the wonderful name of Jesus and the Spirit among us right now. It's your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.